Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Hello, happy Friday. Welcome to another show as we wrap up the week. This is Shira. And I am Ryan. And uh, this is Let's Go There. We're here for you weekdays on Channel Q, 2 to 6 p.m. Pacific, 5 to 9 p.m. Eastern, catching you up on the news of the day and so much more. And speaking of that more, mm-hmm, uh, do you have mm-hmm. any big plans for the weekend? Is that your big lead up? Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. But I did it in like a, a very uh, a mysterious uh. voice. So I'm just ramping up to the excitement. <laughs> Um, this weekend is going to be fun. I'm going to get a COVID test. I have, I have to get one. Oh, okay. um, yeah, yeah, I have to get for, one. For something. Yeah, for work-related things. So that's the thing. We're going to be talking about that on the show, even though you've gotten the vaccine. One I, half. You still got to get the test. You tested. still need to get the test. Yes. You got to make sure everyone is safe. And so I got to get it done. Um, but no, I mean, for the most part, this weekend is going to be very, very relaxing. I am going, uh, not scuba diving, the other thing. I don't go into the water, a deep dive. Scuba diving. And snorkeling. Oh, isn't that scuba diving? N- no. Oh, I don't know what See? scuba diving is. Uh, it's the one where the thing's popping out of the, the water. And the, isn't that what snorkeling is? S- no, snorkeling. Scuba diving is you go all the way down, and snorkeling is with the little thing that pops out of the water. That's my technical definition. So you're going to be in the water. I'm going to be jumping in with a wetsuit. In the in the islands of California. How do you find the time like to that. do all of this stuff? It's the weekend. My boyfriend actually got it for us as a present. He thought it would be a fun weekend activity. That's nice. That's nice. I love that. Yeah, so we'll be in the water and having fun, and hopefully I'll be alive and be here on Monday. I mean, I hope, kind of hope the same. You know, <laughs> Ryan always follows my Instagram stories of the weekend. He's like, can you please be safe? Or yes, like, what are you uh, doing? You gotta be safe watching her. Well, anyway. anxious. Coming up on this show today, we're here to educate all of us. We're talking about the history behind the filibuster and Georgia's new voting regulations. Lots going on. Plus, what COVID-19 testing looks like in the age of vaccines. So stick around for that. Mm -hmm. But let's get into some what's trending this hour as Republicans continue their campaign along the U.S.-Mexico border. They're so interested in the border now, they weren't as interested when... When Trump was in office. Here's Lindsey Graham today who joined other senators and even came out in this armed boat. It was very strange. Why are 18 senators here? Because it's the biggest issue facing the country in many ways right now. 
So Graham introduced a legislation Wednesday he says is designed to regain control of the southern border. He says his Secure and Protect Act of 2021 looks to reform what he calls broken policies and stop abuse of our asylum laws. Meanwhile, Senator Steve Daines threw in a little history when talking about how Mexican meth has overtaken homemade Montana meth. You gotta listen to this one. Which one is it? Oh, it it's is. probably just called meth. <laughs> it's actually just called meth. Why are 18 senators here? Oh, because it's playing the same Lindsey Graham quote. It's the it biggest change? issue facing the... Wait a second. I Technical difficulties. Technical difficulties, people. The flood of Mexican meth, Mexican heroin, Mexican fentanyl. 20 years ago in Montana, meth was homemade. It was homegrown. And it had purity levels less than 30%. Today, the meth that is getting into Montana is Mexican cartel. I mean, really, bring meth back to America. Home grown meth, homemade meth. We deserve better. <laughs> like, that's what a great explanation. It's priorities. Right? It's priorities. priorities. Uh, and that was what's trending this hour. A lot happening at the border. Yeah, and but, I'm pretty sure it's going to keep happening. Oh, huh? yeah. Meanwhile, on the other side of things, the Democrats also hit up the border. Elon Omar was there talking about how it's not right to blame parents uh, and say that they shouldn't be bringing kids across the border or that it's wrong because a lot of times they have no other choice. And that's the reality. Uh, but let's get into some entertainment news, Ryan. What's happening in the T-Report? So we're talking about Lil Nas X new video. I mean, okay. fans are most definitely seeing a whole new side to this man. And honestly, I stand. Little Nas X might be the best artist of all time, in my opinion. Like, it feels like everything he does is just upping and upping, and you're just seeing his confidence more often. And it really makes me excited. It's time for your T-Report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. So, um, a video for the singer's new song, Call Me By Your Name, Montero. Um, It's basically a reference to his given name, Montero Lamar Hill. Um, Now, instead of writing off to the sunset, he is sliding down a stripper pole straight to hell where he is giving uh, Satan like a very uh, sexual lap dance. I don't know. Did you see it? Were you able to catch it last night? I'm uh, I'm watching some of it right now. It's very colorful, very phantasmic. I don't want your real-time thoughts. Uh, the release dropped <laughs> alongside uh, open letter when addressed uh, to his 14-year-old self. He said, I wrote a song with our name in it. And he began his message. I know we uh, promised to never come out publicly. I know we promised never to be that type of gay person. I know we promised to die with the secret, but this will open doors for many other queer people to simply exist. The letter goes on to encourage young queer creatives to push an exist uh, agenda of self-love and making people stay the F out of other people's lives. Uh, I mean, it's pretty iconic. It's really such a beautiful thing. I just kept thinking about last night when I was watching a video, like, imagine me growing up mm-hmm. being able to see someone like a little Nas X and and um, how incredible that is. I, it's just, it's honestly beautiful. It's really great. I'm, I'm such a fan. Yeah, I think it's, it's awesome. And I mean, that stripper pole he goes down, that's a long stripper pole. It almost is scary, like the height. If you're like not, if you're scared of <laughs> Heights. Imagine you going down that stripper pole from heaven to hell. It's intense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's your T report. I got more coming up next hour. 
Okay, now uh, coming up next on the show, the new Georgia voting law that would limit voting access. We're going to be getting into all of that right now and how it could actually influence other states. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed a GOP-sponsored state election law on Thursday. The state, of course, was a pivotal in the 2020 uh, presidential win for Biden and the Democrats' takeover of the Senate. And it is the first battleground state to pass this law, with more to come, possibly. Joining us right now is David Daly, a national best-selling author. His new book is called Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. Thanks for being here. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. So what does this law entail exactly? It is a 95-page law. It's a very complicated set of new voting regulations in Georgia. Really, it's a sweeping effort to restrict voting access. Um, Some of the most important measures in here uh, include additional identification requirements for anybody who is casting a vote absentee. You have to show an ID when requesting an absentee ballot and also when mailing it in. There's a severe limit on on the number of drop boxes that are allowed. This bill eliminates the Secretary of State's uh, power uh, over over local election boards, um, and it gives the legislature their additional power over all of that. And perhaps in one of the uh, nastiest pieces of this bill, it even prohibits Uh, folks from passing out water to people who are in line waiting to vote. And indeed, the the lines in Georgia to vote can often be six and seven hours long. Yeah, we we know that obviously voter suppression hurts black and brown voters the most. So is this a, a direct response to how we saw, you know, Stacey Abrams really change the voting game in Georgia? Do you feel like this is Republicans' response to that? I think it is. And certainly Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp could have a, a rematch in 2022 if she runs for governor once again. I, uh, I think it is, it, it is impossible to look at these sweeping new voting restrictions and not see them as a direct response to what happened in Georgia on January 5th when the state elected two Democratic U.S. senators for the first time in a generation, um, and also November of 2020, when the state went blue quite narrowly. And this was due in large part to the effort of Stacey Abrams and the efforts of, of progressive and black activists who worked on voter registration there for years. Um, and now what you see is the legislature very surgically, very a very targeted way, going after the exact tools that Stacey Abrams and the New Georgia Project and other groups used to build political power. And now they are trying to make it much more difficult for them to turn out and register voters. Yeah, and President Biden condemned this, calling it an atrocity. But what can he actually do? Well, what Democrats can actually do is get behind two bills that are, are, are moving through Congress right now. Uh, Senate Bill 1, which is the For the People Act, uh, that would put an end to partisan gerrymandering and 
require automatic voter registration. It would mandate two weeks of early voting in every state and really nationalize many of the rules that individual state legislatures right now have been chipping away at. And then there's there's House Bill 4, which is named after John Lewis, the late uh, Georgia congressman and, and voting rights and civil rights icon. It's the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And what that would do is restore the full protections of the Voting Rights Act that were so eviscerated by the U.S. Supreme Court in the Shelby County decision back in 2013 that put an end to preclearance. In states like Georgia in the past, states that had a history of racist voting discrimination, if they wanted to make any changes to their their, their election laws, they had to run them past the Department of Justice or a court in Washington, D.C., The Supreme Court put an end to this. Chief Justice John Roberts said that the Voting Rights Act was no longer needed because it's it's no longer 1965 in large parts of the country. Well, um, Georgia yesterday showed us otherwise. So who was the black lawmaker? She was a black woman who uh, Georgia police arrested for knocking on Governor uh, Governor Brian Kemp's like uh, office door as he was like signing the new voting restrictions. Do we have any updates on that? Like, can you tell us a little bit more like what happened there? Yeah, uh, so there was an African-American state senator. Uh, She she wanted to see what was happening with this voting bill, which was put on a fast track through Georgia's legislature, signed almost immediately into law by Brian Kemp after it passed on a party-line vote. Uh, And so she knocked on the governor's office door um, and was immediately arrested and charged with several felonies. Um, I think it would be hard to imagine that... uh, those those uh, charges would stand up or that the 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 uh, black prosecutor in in Fulton County in Atlanta would actually bring these trumped up uh, charges into a into a court. But if you look at that picture, right, if you look at the picture of of Governor Kemp signing this new restrictive voting bill into law, Kemp is surrounded by. Uh, six or seven white male politicians, and he is standing before a picture of one of Georgia's most notorious slave plantations. Uh, And those two images, to me, Georgia's white power structure uh, and the state's racist past, and then the image of a black senator denied the power to even witness this and arrested for knocking on the door in her workplace. Hmm. These are two shameful images today. Yeah, and her name is uh, State Representative Park Cannon. I wanted to make sure we got that name and said that. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for covering this. Yeah, that was David Daly. Again, check out his new book, Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. Coming up on the show, the history behind the filibuster and why it's inherently racist. That's next with Politico's Maya King. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. In a recent news conference, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell shared his thoughts about the filibuster. Historians do not agree it has no racial history at all. None. So there's no dispute among historians uh, about that. Really? No racial history at all? Well, Maya King is back with us, a politics reporter at Political, where she writes about the intersection of race and politics. Thanks again for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. 
Uh, so why don't you educate everyone on the history behind the filibuster? Is Mitch right here? Well, not entirely. In fact, really mostly um, not. We know that the filibuster has its roots in uh, attempts and that were largely successful um, of pro-segregation lawmakers who were aiming to block civil rights legislation. Um, and this was at its height, of course, in the 1960s uh, with the Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act on the floor of the Senate. The filibuster became a key uh, tool for those who were against this legislation in trying to table it. Um, Joe Biden in the past has referred to, and we saw yesterday during yesterday's press conference, uh, referred to the filibuster as, quote, a relic of Jim Crow, end quote, which is in fact what um, what it is. And it's why you've seen so many civil rights leaders now, particularly black civil rights leaders, really pushing lawmakers to um, get rid of this of the filibuster or try to find a way to reform it so that, you know, as we revisit this conversation about civil rights and voting rights, Democrats who have a very slim majority in the Senate are actually able to make some changes there and get the votes that they need to pass this legislation. Yeah, I think the one thing that's interesting, though, and the fact that Joe Biden knows also that it is like a relic of Jim Crow era, why won't he just abolish it then? Like, what does that look like in terms of getting rid of it completely? Well, you know, it's really tricky. Um, part of it, of course, is the fact that he doesn't quite have the votes to be able to steamroll something through. Um, right now, as it stands, you'll need 60 votes to, en- to enable in-, in order to pass this legislation. Um, and because Democrats only have that slim majority, again, just 50 uh, Democrats in the Senate, it's kind of hard for him to really make any changes there. And there's also, of course, the uh, the political calculation here, which is, Yes, of course, you could try to steamroll this through and figure out a way to, uh, you know, reform the filibuster, which is something that the president has signaled he's open to. But I think on the other side, of course, there is the blowback and whether or not Republicans, if they were to retake control of the Senate, would try to use these same measures newly in place um, to either undo a lot of the progress that Joe Biden has done or block more of his um, of his attempts to make changes in the future. Yeah, the thing is, it could work the other way around, too. So while we take it away, if they end up um, owning the Senate, right, a majority, then they could totally use that against the Democrats and really do a lot of hurt. Yeah, exactly. And we're in a time right now where the president and Democrats are you know, signaling that they're interested in being um, as progressive, as more progressive, at least, in their efforts to pass legislation. There's the $3 trillion infrastructure bill that's up next. Um, Also, of course, gun reform is something that's front of mind for a number of people. And climate change. I mean, these are the the next uh, big uh, policy issues that are on Democrats' minds and on the docket, really, in terms of passage. And then, of course, we can't forget uh, the Voting Rights Act, um, S-1, that would also be slated to pass that would undo a number of the um, uh, protections that or the lack of protections, I should say, that have been put in place now, especially in places like Georgia. So Democrats have a lot on their plate here and they have a lot riding on their decisions over these next few months. However, it seems that they won't be able to really make a lot of progress there with the filibuster still in place as it is right now. Yeah, it seems like Republicans are completely kind of at the point where they're owning um, kind of like their problematic ways. I I think we thought the end of a Trump era was over, but it just seems like they're kind of doing it, but like not as extreme. Is this what we can expect moving forward with the, the, the GOP party that will just continue to get 
these kind of like non-inclusive, you know, super problematic rhetorics? Well, you know, the fact of the matter is that that Republicans are quickly inching away from from democracy and principles of democracy. And we saw that in Georgia with Democrats, you know, under the guise of uh, voter protection and ending voter fraud actually curbed people's access to the ballot and sort of ended just voting rights in many ways. And so I think that as more Republicans, if they continue to adopt this mantra that was largely, um, you know, it was in place before Trump, but certainly was bolstered under Trump. If this is the party that they, um, you know, will continue to own, then I think absolutely we'll just, we'll just continue to see these kinds of policies being put in place. And it starts on the state level, whether or not, Uh, You know, we'll see a nationwide mandate to start to curb access to the ballot. I'm not sure, but it is certainly troubling to see how Republicans have started to believe what we know now was absolutely a lie about voter fraud and start to curb people's rights on access to democracy um, under that under that lie. Yeah, it is. It's, it seems to be like their only way to survive is doing this. Well, Maya King, thanks again for being here. We always appreciate you and your reporting. Uh, Maya King is a politics reporter at Politico, where she writes about the intersection of race and politics. Have a great night. Coming up on the show, uh, now Parler, the alt-right social network, is throwing Facebook under the bus for the U.S. Capitol riots. More on that next. So in early February, the U.S. House Committee on Oversight and Reform asked the social media platform Parler, remember them? Oh, God, got taken down. Parler. Yes, uh, they asked them to produce information regarding their finances and potential ties to foreign entities. And it came after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, which allegedly involved many Parler users, which isn't surprising, by the way. And now Parler has responded. And this article of Mashable was uh, pretty kind of funny dragging them because they said uh, they responded dragging Facebook. They basically said we aren't as ba- aren't bad because Facebook is worse. Don't blame us. I mean, Facebook is worse. So to give you context, uh, in terms of numbers, where is this? I wrote this down. Okay. Parler has 15 million users, which is actually pretty big for how uh, how short of a Yeah, there's time a lot of racist around. people out there. Yes. Um, around the beginning of 2021, they have 15 million users. Twitter has 192 million daily active users. Facebook, 1.84 billion. Wow, big jump between Twitter and Facebook, by the way. Um, and then in this uh, in this uh, Department of Justice um, said that there were 200 charging documents filed concerning the January 6th attempted coup. Facebook was referenced 73 times, Parler only eight. And so Parler basically said, hey... Don't get on us. I mean, look at Facebook. Let's just like put the attention on Facebook and this not is on the us. Worst conversation in the parlor, Facebook. Honestly, this was like a nightmare. Um, wait, I'm gonna play this. Look at this. It was all bull. <laughs> Honestly, that's exactly how I feel about this because you can't even compare the two. Like, Parler saying that Facebook is worse is just absolutely ironic, even though Facebook might be worse, but Parler is also like a, like a dumpster fire. It's like, well, in Star Wars, are there two evils in, in Star Wars? Are there two Darth Vaders? I don't... Uh, <sighs> it's like having two <laughs> evil people competing against the evil. It is. Right. Uh, So they said the committee should recognize that curbing violent rhetoric and incitement is hard. (laughs) And it is evident that even the largest and most well-resourced big tech companies have had significant difficulties doing it. But Parler 
never wanted that though. They that's initially they were built why on it. exactly they wanted those people and those conversations to be had on those platform and their platform. So the fact that they're kind of like trickling back talking about it's so hard for us. We are the victims here. They also it was say all <laughs> Thank you. It was. That's the one thing I agree with Trump on today. Uh, they rejected a report that suggests that they negotiated with individuals representing then-President Donald Trump and offered to provide the former president with an ownership interest in the company. Meanwhile, in the same paragraph, they say there were early-stage conceptual discussions between Parler and the Trump Organization concerning the possibility that the Trump Organization would acquire an ownership interest in Parler. But not President Trump. Trump Organization. What? Not President Trump. See, this is disgust. I mean, what I wonder if this is like they're having talks about, you know, since Trump wants to create his own social platform, I wonder if he's now going to kind of tiptoe over there now. Why don't? Why doesn't he just take the founders and the infrastructure, yeah. bring it on over to him, rebrand it? Because a racist needs a place to be. They can all swim in, in the pond together. <laughs> I mean, racists do need safe spaces. Let's just be honest here. Everyone deserves a safe space, especially a racist. Exactly. <laughs> It was all bull. <laughs> Let us know what you think at LGT Show on social media. Coming up, we've got what's trending this hour. Pete Buttigieg is getting dragged for his solution to getting more money to fund the infrastructure bill. Who he wants to get that money from next. Coming up on the show today, why COVID-19 testing, uh, what it looks like in the age of vaccines. Because just because you got your vaccine doesn't mean you stop testing. I know, which is so annoying because I thought it was over and done with. But um, I hope that I can find the testing center because I'm getting tested this weekend where I don't have to do the nose thing. Because I've been able to avoid that out of this entire pandemic. I've never done the nose up into your brain. Mm, I've never done it. It really isn't that bad. I, I don't I don't believe you. All right. Try it for <laughs> It looks painful. It looks painful. It's more like you cry a bit. Yeah. Who wants to cry? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. You know, Who you wants to cry? I'd rather just spit in the cup and call it a day. Or there was uh, another place that they made people scream in like place, like scream so they could get your uh, breath Oh, out. like the spin Yeah, particles. you just scream and then they like test the air. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that just made me think about how we're in a room and there's spit yep. particles in the room. Even though there's plexiglass. There's plexiglass. It's really safe plexiglass. Uh, plus, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has widened the ability to sue police for excessive force. This is actually a game changer. We're going to be talking about that in 30 minutes. You really need to stick around for that. Let's get into some what's trending this hour right now, though. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg signaled support for a vehicle miles traveled tax, otherwise known as VMT. It could replace the gas tax in order to fund highways. You know, the infrastructure stuff. Here's what he shared on CNBC. What about a mileage-based tax? So I think that shows a lot of promise. If, if we believe in that so-called user pays principle, the idea that part of how we pay for roads is you pay based on how much you drive, uh, the gas tax used to be the obvious way to do it. It's not anymore. So a so-called vehicle miles traveled tax or mileage tax, whatever you want to call it, could be a way to do it. When did he become a truck driver all of a sudden? <laughs> it's like he's speaking in a whole other NASCAR language I've never heard of. Well, yeah, if people were not happy about this. Uh, VMT remains very unpopular because of privacy concerns, since it requires some sort of GPS monitoring system to track how much people are driving. And also it's the same reason raising the t- gas tax is unpopular. Drivers just don't want to pay more for the service they're using. So, What's the service being driving? Yeah. Okay, I didn't know. I was just well, like, I wasn't or sure. Or taxis. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And also, yeah, the taxi drivers. I mean, it gets complicated. Yeah. I'm not the expert. You mean the Uber drivers? I, like, who's taking a taxi anymore? 
people. That's weird. Just order an Uber. Yes, I wonder if this would, they look at the tax, uh, taxing drivers. Oh, no, taxing drivers, not taxis. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh I guess God. you're safe. You can take the taxi if you want. Didn't our program director just say, oh, we had the best hour last hour? It's <laughs> <laughs> downhill from here. Oh, that's hilarious. He taxing drivers, us. not taxis. Taxing drivers. Uh... The former director of the CDC uh, believes the virus that causes COVID-19 escaped from a lab in Wuhan, China. That's according to a new interview. Did we Rob, know that? Uh, well, it's been debated. Robert Redfield told CNN on Friday that it was his opinion, opinion that SARS-CoV-2, the new coronavirus responsible for killing 2.7 million people globally, did not evolve naturally. He goes, I'm of the point of view that I still think the most likely etiology of this pathology in Wuhan was from a lab, escaped. He led the uh, CDC during the height of the pandemic. Other people don't believe that. That's fine. Science will eventually figure it out. Researchers do believe the deadly and highly uh, transmissible strain of coronavirus behind this pandemic mutated from a virus that infects animals, bats, to one that sickens humans. So that's how people believe it happened. By the way, that's that's the truth behind it. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? So Madonna's being accused of doing the weirdest thing ever. Um, it is time for your tea report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. So Madonna may be a body snatcher. Yes, what does that a mean? A body snatcher. So TikTok user Amelia Goldie says the pop icon edited a photo of her face onto Goldie's torso for a 2015 Instagram picture promoting Madonna's Rebel Heart album. Here's what Amelia said. She said, when Madonna posts a photo of herself to IG to promote her album, but it's actually your body, in parentheses, it says, I'm not joking. Um, you would have thought Madonna would have deleted the photo now that everyone kind of knows, but it's still up. Uh, the accusation stirred some outrage among fans that Madonna may have used someone else's material without permission. And I will say, it does look like a photoshopped photo um, where Madonna's head is like plastered on this girl's body. I'm not really sure what Madonna was thinking. Um, and I'm not really sure if we're going to get a conclusion. Like a pop art or something. Yeah, it just feels weird. And the, the caption on this photo said, from Madonna says, I look cool with a heart. Hashtag rubble Oh, I heart. see. Yeah, it was obvious that it was photoshopped. That definitely is not her body. It's a body of a young girl. It's a young strange. girl. Exactly. Now, Amelia, she's 28, but this was back in 2015, so the girl was still kind of, well, I guess, uh, way younger than a Madonna. <laughs> no shit. It's like, oh, yeah, her face is one thing, but her body's still young. Yeah, I don't know. It's just very strange. Like, why would Madonna do like, this? She does has no need to do this. Heart. She has probably, like, all the opportunities to Photoshop herself. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, I don't think we're going to hear from Madonna or again. just take Madonna, like, her body when she was that age and use that, right? <gasps> True. Why uh, not? Why, I should be her why branding expert. Not? Well, that's your tea report. I got more coming up next hour. Well, coming up, even if you've gotten a vaccine, you'll still have to do some COVID-19 testing. What that actually looks like during this age of vaccines next. As more people get the vaccine, does that mean you should stop testing yourself? Jennifer Nuzzo is with us, a doctor of public health and senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so that that is the question, I guess. You know, when should you be getting tests when you have the vaccine? 
Yeah, so the recommendation for people who have gotten the vaccine um, is pretty much if you have symptoms. So if if you have symptoms that seem like COVID-19, it's still important to get vaccinated. Um, you know, it is still potentially possible to, to get sick, and it's important to know so you don't spread it to others. And also it's how we kind of count cases. Um, but for everyone else, um, you know, really, it's not only if you have symptoms, but also if you've been exposed to somebody who uh, also tested positive, if you have a particular reason to think you may become may have become infected, like you had a very kind of high risk um, encounter, then it's important to go out because, you know, we know that you can spread this virus even if you don't have any symptoms and that will help keep the numbers um, down and hopefully continue this good progress we've been seeing um, in reducing cases. Right. But I guess testing didn't really stop surges before. So why will things be any better if we keep, you know, getting tested? Sure. So no single intervention on its own is going to stop surges. We need to do it all. And testing is just a really important one. And it's actually important because it's the start of a process that has to happen. So testing is a way that we figure out who has the virus and who's capable of spreading it to others. And then when you test positive, it's the signal that you should stay home until you're no longer contagious so you don't accidentally spread it to somebody unwittingly. Um, and then, you know, it's also the way that we can identify people who uh, also may have been exposed. So all of those actions remain important, even as we're rolling out vaccine. I mean, vaccines are enormously important, um, but uh, we're not there to the point yet where the majority of us are protected by vaccines. So all those other public health measures, testing, wearing masks, staying home if you're sick, uh, avoiding high risk places, those remain essential. Do you think it'll be harder to get tests because, you know, here in L.A. Dodger Stadium, which was a big vaccination or I mean, testing area now has moved to focus on vaccines. So will that happen more and more in different cities where the uh, testing will be less of a focus? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm afraid um, is happening already. And it's one of the reasons why I've been sounding the alarm. But, you know, it's great that we're rolling out vaccines, but let's not forget about testing. It's still really important. And, you know, I understand why this is happening. States and cities, uh, they're focused on vaccines and they only have so much bandwidth to do, um, you know, things at once. So they're pulling people off of um, testing and um, shutting down testing sites and turning them into vaccine sites. Totally understandable that's happening, but we need to continue to test. So unfortunately, it may be harder for you to find a place to get tested. I just actually tried to get tested myself this week and found it surprisingly hard. I Mm. did prevail. I did find it. So stick with it. Yeah, I I guess... Because it's we're starting to see the shutdown of the, all these testing sites are yeah. re- converting them over to vaccine sites. Where is the pregnancy test but for COVID? Like the things oh, I can buy in the drugstore. Tell me about it. I've been asking that same question. Yeah, I mean, we do have tests that you can use at home. The problem is they're really expensive still. There's not many of them. And um, it's just uh, we don't have the number of tests that uh, do that kind of thing that we need and the ones that we do have are still too a little a little bit too expensive for people to to test themselves you know somewhat regularly yeah they have a vending machine one in new york will that be something we see more i think those kinds of creative solutions are what's needed my understanding is some of those tests are actually still really expensive so we need cheaper tests and we need more of them and are they are they even accurate yeah i mean those rapid tests um, that, that you can get it outside, you know, that don't require laboratory settings. Um, they're accurate, particularly with respect to who's contagious. But if you test negative, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be positive the next day. So you can't take it as like permission to do all sorts of risky things, but it gives you information for that moment. Definitely. Well, uh, that was Jennifer Nuzzo, a doctor of public health and senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Thanks for being with us today. 
Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now, coming up next, the U.S. Supreme Court just made a huge move when it comes to suing police for excessive force. More on that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. The U.S. Supreme Court on Thursday expanded the ability of people to sue police for excessive force. Wylam Weiss is back with us. He's a political science advisor. Uh, Wylam, I want to get right into this because um, tell us more about the case that ended up uh, moving towards this ruling. Uh, Yes, thank you for having me on, first of all. Um, Second of all, uh, yes, so basically the case is, uh, 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 it's a case in Albuquerque in New Mexico, uh, Torres v. Madrid, where a woman by the name of Torres was actually running away from the cops. She uh, thought in her excuse that she was being carjacked, and the officers opened fire on her. She got hit, but she was still able to make an escape. Now, eventually, she was caught, and she actually tried to sue for excessive force. The idea was that she wasn't actually being a danger to the police officers. She was simply just running, and they fired at her for no reason. And she tried to make the argument with her attorneys that it was a violation of the Fourth Amendment, which is the protection of unwarranted searches and seizures. And it's a very complicated subject because what is considered a seizure in terms of personal body and property, you know, and when cops can do this and when there's exigent circumstances. So in the long story, to make it short, she sued and the Supreme Court actually agreed with her and said that even if they couldn't actually physically restrain her after she was shot, it's still a form of a seizure. And therefore, she has the right to sue if she believes that there is excessive force being used. So she hasn't sued yet, or is she in the process of suing? She is in the process of suing. Now, there's, there's some discussion here about what this means in the broader sense. Right. Because ultimately... Uh, police forces can probably try to use what they always know as qualified immunity to protect themselves from further lawsuits. But in this case, what it can do is it can really pull back what we call trigger-happy cops uh, when they just open fire for really no reason. The position is that, well, no matter what, if you fired, you can be actually sued technically for violating a person's Fourth Amendment right for unwarranted searches and seizures. But we've seen this type of these type of actions from police force and and we I feel like there's all this heightened public scrutiny of police conduct of course in the wake of all of these protests and of course last year Black Lives Matter. So why is it now like this is something that's kind of happened versus it we didn't see it kind of moving in that way last year? Well, it's interesting enough it's it's kind of wild to actually see how the court is moving and to be fair, also, this court was actually heavily divided. Uh, justice Amy Comey Barrett was actually not part of the decision-making because she was not a justice at the time. She did not have the opportunity to listen to the case. But in this point, uh, Roberts actually basically just stated through previous cases that he agreed that any time a cop uses any form of force, it is considered the law trying to come after you and seize you. And surprisingly, it was a surprising uh a decision from the court, but Roberts basically just stated that any form of force is considered a form of seizure. And I think it really just ties into the way we're looking at policing in the 21st century. Uh, and that is, you know, we can't use force for every form of control. Yeah. And so how will this be a game changer moving forward? Uh, do you think this people lean on this ruling to protect themselves in the future? 
there's there's a there's a, a debate going on amongst the legal scholars here. Uh, half of them will say like this is actually a very narrow view of the Fourth Amendment and your protections. Uh, I'm more inclined to agree with the more broad view, which is that yes, this can have ramifications throughout policing for years to come, particularly when police use any form of force, whether it's a taser, a firearm, or even just handcuffs. Of when is it necessary to actually control somebody? And if it's an actual violation of their Fourth Amendment rights, so cops might be much more wary now to use any form of force to control a suspect if they really don't have any probable cause to. You can't just say, well, I just was scared. That may not fly anymore. Yeah, and Wylam, you work for the the state or the city. Uh, of California, like you will, uh, Los Angeles. City of Los Angeles. Yeah. yeah. And it's really yeah. interesting because obviously Los Angeles and Echo Park, there's a lot happening um, with police officers and the protesting. And I wonder what your thoughts about that is, especially when it comes to excessive force from officers. Um, maybe we can keep you on and, and have you back after the break. Would you like to stick around? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cute. Let's do it. Well, we got more Wylam coming up next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. We are back with Wylam Weiss, political science advisor, also the assistant to the mayor of Los Angeles. And of course, we can't have you on without talking about what's happening with the homeless crisis in Los Angeles, specifically Echo Park. We actually had an NPR reporter on to talk about that yesterday. What's your take on how the city has handled this entire situation? Uh, there's a lot to be talked about later in terms of, the, you know, with investigations and reports about how police handled the protesters and the uh, movement of the homeless population. Eventually, we have to say, especially as the mayor would state, that this was sort of a necessary move, unfortunately, but it was necessary because the park had started to grow a crime problem and a sanitation problem. And we have to wind up finding a way to balance the pros and cons, especially with the neighborhood. And it's a fact that it's a city park. It is open to the public. It is owned by the residents of the city of Los Angeles, while also respecting the rights and the needs of the homeless population and making sure it's not just a temporary move, but we really have to push to get them real permanent housing. Yeah, I I guess... Um, thank you for your thoughts on that, but I'm I more so am kind of was alarmed by a lot of the the peaceful protesting that was happening that ended up turning kind of like excessive excessively violent, um, and wondering what more should we be focusing on and working with, especially with our law enforcement, to make sure when they're going into these spaces that people don't end up with broken bones or people are ending up hurting, and especially in a conversation talking about kind of like excessive force. Uh, no, and it's totally understandable. It's a great question. Uh, and if, the fact is, of course, any form of force from a police officer, and especially with the LAPD, should always be taken with a serious grain of salt and be looked at properly and through the proper investigative channels. But in this case, there was some reports of bottles and rocks being thrown at police officers. Again, this will come out possibly as time goes on with the further investigations about how police use force in this regard. But it, ultimately, in this case, the bigger issue is... Um, that we need to do more for the homeless population. And the public does have a right in their speaking in, in the way they're saying that you can't just move people and hope that, it, that the problem just disappears. And that's really on us as leadership of the city. Yeah. And it's a matter of really solving the ultimate problem to the goal, which is get these citizens permanent housing. And right now, which we agree, is a major homeless crisis. And yeah. homelessness crisis. And the problem, of course, is it's only been compounded 
by this pandemic and loss of jobs. Definitely. And we've talked about this before, um, you know, off air, even me and Wailam trying to figure out, like, is there something to do at a grassroots level? But this is such a big layered problem. I mean, wouldn't it just require finding budget to create this more sustainable housing? It does, but it's also it's a very multi-layered, uh, faceted system, right? Because it, it requires yes, it requires money, it requires mental health services for a lot of people who, unfortunately, the longer they live on the street, the more their mental health begins to degrade. Uh, it also requires possibly removing a lot of red tape, uh, particularly in the state of California, so that we can build buildings faster uh, instead of having to constantly wait for bureaucratic positions to complete their process before building a building. I mean, it does seem like y'all were able to find the funds to get all those law enforcements out there and a fence out there quickly. So it seems like we have to focus on getting, you know, people taken care of. And it's, I, I mean, I love Echo Park and it's just really uh, sad to know that was happening in my backyard. But thank you for your thoughts. And we appreciate always having you on, Wylam. Thank you very much. Yeah, that was Wylan Weiss, political science advisor, also the assistant to the uh, mayor of L.A. <laughs> Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Coming up on the show, we've got What's Trending This Hour. Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock is speaking out about the new Georgia voting laws. That's next. Welcome back to the show. And coming up, should Scarlett Johansson's political views impact her career? Brian, Ryan is bringing us that in the T Report. I almost called you our program director. You called me name. our boss. <laughs> Brian, can you call us? Even though that's a good that's a good uh, name to have, I'm just saying. Yeah. Plus, in 15 minutes, what to know if you get hungry in the middle of the night? This is for all you folks who have that, you know, a sweet tooth in the middle. It's of the for night. you. I'd actually, that's the one time I don't eat. Remember when you told me the story about how your boyfriend told you, like, are you sure you want to eat that? Like the chips? Remember oh you were God. eating bags of chips? This, yeah, so what happened was, I am vegetarian, so I don't have, uh, you know, sometimes you don't have a lot of options. But I nosh specifically, my go-to nosh snacks are uh, tortilla chips, uh-huh. uh, guac, uh-huh. and hummus. Hummus is like a go-to. So I guess I came to the kitchen at 8 p.m. or something at the end of my day, and I was just throwing it down, eating out of that bag, like no one's business. And he basically was like, just stared at me as I was just throwing chips down my throat and goes, are you sure you want to eat all that? Did he regret it as soon as he said and it? And then I said, excuse what did you just say to me? <laughs> oh, yeah, he regretted it. I was he like, apologized. This is one like, of those moments where you're like, I just saw the like all of my fl- like life flash in between my yeah, eyes. Yeah, like I won't be getting any action for it. Not at all. He, he ain't getting no WAP. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> he learned his lesson quick. Okay, uh, now let's get into some what's trending this hour. Georgia Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock shared his thoughts on the voting restrictions signed into law uh, last night in Georgia. Here's the clip. What are they going to do about voting rights? The question really is not, where do I stand on the filibuster? That's a Senate rule. The most fundamental question is, where do you stand on voting rights? We wouldn't have to have this debate about the filibuster, at least on this issue, if the folks on the other side would do the right thing and stand for voting rights and vote the bill up. They can vote the bill up. Why won't they stand up for voting rights? They see what's happening right here in Georgia. They they see they see legislators deciding that it's a crime to give people water. Uh, this comes, of course, as Republicans push through a law that imposes an ID requirement on absentee ballot requests, limits use of 
ballot drop boxes and shrinks the period for runoff contests. You know, actually, other major changes. Well. I like that he, I think he's right about saying, well, why aren't you asking Republicans what totally. they're going to do about voting rights? Because it seems like the questions are always pointed at Democrats and like, what should we do or how do we fix this? But no, if we're not the ones creating or causing the problem, then go ask the people creating and causing the problem how we fix the issues that they're creating and causing to. I think that's what makes more sense. And I love that he bought that up because it it's very powerful. true. It was powerful. However, it ain't you, powerful. You, it's just it is. It's just logic. Yeah, it's logic. But if you throw that back at them, they're just going to spew nonsense. And then we're not going to get anywhere. Well, and then there's your answer to that, right? You keep asking Democrats for the right answer and they're giving it to you. Go ask Republicans and t- just show them and show the American people how ridiculous they sound. That is true. Okay, that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so Scarlett Johansson. Um, Johansson. Uh, whatever her name is. She's Normally, she's a tree to me. Um, oh, she's also a treat to herself. Remember, she said she would identify as a, a treat. Tree. I, I, yeah, it's I a pop culture reference. Up. Sorry, Sharon. No, no I a, know pop culture references. It's a little late. It's a little late for you. I, I get it. Um, but uh, she's speaking out about her uh, political views. Not like anyone asked her, but it's time for the tea report. Most pop culture stories trending right now, and I guess I gotta admit, someone did ask her. She did a interview. And uh, she believes her political views shouldn't impact her career as an actress. She says, I don't think uh, actors have obligations to have a public role in society. She also added that she thinks it's unfair to place the expectation on those who don't want it. She said, quote, your job is to reflect our experiences to ourselves. Your job is to be a mirror uh, for an audience, to be able to have an empathetic experience through art. That is what your job is. She then discussed, not shockingly, her thoughts on the 2020 election, saying that when Joe Biden won the presidency, quote, you can hear people losing their minds outside. And I just cried. She added it was a pretty crazy reaction. Oh, my God, it's over. It felt like the end of a war, you know? Um, I'm tired of her. And I really like her because I like Black Widow and I'm going to watch the movie. She's just like she's stuck there in the Marvel universe. But she is absolutely the worst. Well, honestly, the worst. Yeah, I, she, she's talented and very good looking, but uh, I, what's that got to do with anything? I'm saying the but, but I do think she needs to reflect and be a bit more self aware on how she responds to these things because she says one thing and then just like then of course includes her thoughts on obviously the election. So I, I don't think that it's it's not like we we want our actors and. Uh, talent to be involved in politics it's more that if you're going to have a platform and the world around you is falling apart and everyone's dying then we want maybe you to use your privilege to do something about it i agree wholeheartedly that is your tea report let us know keep the conversation going at lgt show um and of course uh we are channelq.com is the website well coming up if you wake up in the middle of the night hungry you gotta Stick around to listen to this next segment. And if you just want to know what happens, if in the future you're going to wake up hungry, you're going to want to stick around. We've got an expert for that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Stomach growling and wondered, what is going on? Is it even normal to be this hungry at this hour? Well, joining us right now is Bethany Dorfler, who's a registered dietitian and clinical research specialist at at Northwestern Medicine. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Happy Friday. What a perfect topic for today. I know. Love ourselves a good Friday. 
Uh, and we actually have never talked about this subject, which is surprising because we've talked about a lot of things. <laughs> uh, but what what is your body saying when you're hungry in the middle of the night? Well, I would tell you that if your body is truly hungry in the middle of the night, there's probably something that's messing with your sleep cycle, like maybe too much alcohol, maybe menopause if you're a woman. Um and, you know, certainly it could be that you just haven't eaten enough. But oftentimes, once we're in that deep sleep, you need something else to kind of wreak havoc on that natural sleep cycle to wake you up and make you want to eat. So it seems like, though, if you want to kind of eat in the middle of the night, which I feel like I've done. I'm not going to lie to you. I've gotten up like around like three-ish being like, I am starving, but I'll just go grab a little bit of a snack. Like nothing major, nothing too heavy. Is that a bad thing that I'm doing that? It's not if it happens occasionally. If it happens on a regular basis and, like some of my patients say, they need it to be able to go back to sleep, then we want to investigate your sleep cycle and see if you're able to consolidate or kind of keep your sleep really intense within, you know, certain hours of the evening. Um, and there's some people that get up in the middle of the night that don't even know they're eating and they kind of find their wrappers and food the next morning. And that certainly is a what? little bit more problematic. Wait, so they're like sleepwalking eating? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, some people have a very particular sleep disturbance that makes them night eat, um, and they're not even aware that they're doing it. Wait, it's is not that, common. Is that the night eating syndrome? That can be night eating syndrome. The other way we think about night eating syndrome is when people eat kind of all of their calories really late at night, which of course makes you wake up in the morning and not feel hungry. And then I, is that not healthy? Yeah, the reason why it's not healthy, you know, it's, it's, uh, everything is fine when it happens occasionally. But if that is your daily pattern, you know, we, we metabolize, going back to that conversation we had earlier about kind of how your metabolism works, you are much more metabolically efficient earlier in the day. You're going to burn those calories and not store them as fat if you use them earlier in the day. When you have them very late at night or in the middle of the night, that's where problems arise. So what do you do? What do you do to kind of control your nighttime hunger? Yeah. So I think a good thing is to have something very targeted before you go to bed, maybe two hours before you go to bed, and something healthy, maybe with a little protein, you know, some nuts, or maybe you want some people want to have some yogurt or cheese, you know, whatever the protein is that you want, go for it, two hours or so before bed. If you wake up and you are starving and cannot go back to sleep without it, same snack time rules apply. Pick something small, something healthy, a little protein, something that's not binge-worthy. If you're finding you can't control your middle of your night cravings, it's definitely worth a discussion with your doctor. Okay. Mm. And what about... Like you're dying? <laughs> no, definitely not. But more oh. that your sleep cycle is dysregulated. And, mm -hmm. you know, getting your sleep right matters because we know that not having good consolidated sleep on a typical basis can open up the door to other health problems like high blood pressure and diabetes. Oh, yeah, that's bad. What if you need to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night? Is that healthy? It is. And uh, for many people, it becomes a, a very routine pattern, especially if you've had kids. I've heard read the book Breathe because <laughs> they talk about nose breathing and how if you're, you're mouth breathing too much, you'll have to go to the bathroom because there's a thyroid issue or something. Oh, my God, like I just forgot. I found out recently someone told me I am an like, like obnoxious snorer. And I had oh. no clue that I was a snorer. You might be mouth breathing too much. You got to, uh, and I don't know if you've heard about this, like nose breathing and how that impacts everything. 
just yeah, I mean, snoring is snoring is another symptom that tells us, you know, maybe you're not getting as good a quality of That's sleep, true. especially if you're a person who snores and chokes. Oh, <gasps> well, how am I supposed to know I'm sleeping? How am I supposed to know I'm choking? <laughs> you need a nighttime partner to tell you. Oh, well, girl, I'm single over here, so <laughs> thanks. <laughs> well, Beth- Bethany Dorfler, thank you so much for joining us again. Have a great Thank you. Weekend. Thank you for having me. Be well. You too. Bethany is a registered dietitian, clinical research specialist at Northwestern Medicine. Coming up on the show, the Atlanta shooting has put the hate crime bill on blast, but our next guest thinks calling it that isn't nearly enough. That conversation next. Calling the Atlanta shootings a hate crime isn't nearly enough. That's the headline of Saida Grandi's latest article. She's an assistant professor of sociology and African-American studies at Boston University. We love having her on. Thanks for being here. She joins us now. Hey, y'all. Hey. So it is wonderful to be here. Yes. Uh, obviously, on not, you know, with not such good news, of course, but what, uh, you, yes. what you wrote really resonated, of course, in um, The Atlantic. So, congratulations for that. Uh, but thank can, you, dear. Can you explain the complicated history with the hate crime bill that you reference in your article and why it is important as it relates to the recent shooting? Yes. So, uh, first of all, apologies to all my legal eagles because I am such a poser. So, you know, I'm just a sociologist who reads a lot about, you know, legal history and particularly because, you know, I have an intersectional analysis that I bring to everything. So it's really, you know, I love, I love, you know, um, dipping into their lane. So, you know, in researching for this project, one of the things that was really apparent to me is that you know, the, we like to think, I think we have a public imagination about hate crimes in terms of like, oh, they must have come from like, you know, marginalized people pushing for them. And that's not actually the origin story. Their origin story is really that they expanded one when hate crimes were not on the rise. So hate crimes are not a problem. And so that's like the first like, mm, like that seems like a little suspect history. Right. They weren't a problem. And yet they were being pushed primarily by tough-on-crime legislators. So they're actually just an extension of the carceral state. What they do is not what people think they do. I think a lot of people think of them in the way that maybe the anti-lynching bill was done in the 1940s, in which we're trying to criminalize something that white people are doing with impunity, a type of violence that's not prosecuted. That's not what hate crimes do. Hate crimes are basically superfluous add-ons. They add sentencing on to legal codes we already have. If you're going to murder someone, we already have legal codes for murder. It doesn't expand our legal net in terms of, oh, now we're going to prosecute this thing we didn't before. It actually just becomes, okay, now we're adding five years onto what would already been a life sentence, most likely. Yeah. I I think the thing that I, I really think about, especially with all of this happening, is like, marginalized groups are never going to really see true liberation yeah. because of the like of the system of white supremacy that is continuously existing and it's just like how do we ever get to that point of having this like real liberation or even if a bond mm-hmm. happened if we're still stuck in this system that even hate bills and hate crimes and all these things mm-hmm. existed So here's what, you know, if hate crimes were to be effectual, here's what I think they would have looked like. It would have looked like, okay, if we're talking about Atlanta, if we're talking about, you know, histories of white terrorism on black communities via lynching, what it would have looked like is we're actually going to provide resources for these communities that renders them less vulnerable, right? It would have looked like, oh, the actual communities of queer people, of trans people who are targeted by these crimes, 
We're going to do things for those communities that keep them not only safer, to hell with a, a, a law enforcement idea of safer, safer in terms of we're providing housing. We're providing, you know, all sorts of, 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 of resources that actually make, make their lives so they're not on, you know, they're, they're not in these insecure, vulnerable places. You know, trans people have this very often insecure relationship with housing. What if we just had housing for trans people? Right. That would mean they were more protected, right? But that's not what hate crimes do. What hate crime legislation does is it actually, this is the irony, for all of our talk about defunding the police, hate crimes fund the police. They just give them more resources. Now, uh, yes, you're bringing up so many Ooh, amazing so points. We want to continue having you on the show <laughs> because we're just scratching the surface and, and get into. So you're saying... Throw hate crimes out. We need to obviously look at the bigger issues here, but yet still it's around. So I want to make people understand, like, I guess, how we even approach it. If it's not going to go away, how we can better approach the hate crime bill. That's next. We are back with Saida Grundy. She's an assistant professor of sociology and African-American studies at Boston University as we talk about the hate crime bill and a great article she wrote in The Atlantic about this. So... Why is the hate crime bill so legally hard to define? And it, it seems it's open to bias because of the word motivation as it relates to a hate crime. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really key to it. So one thing we need to understand is that legal apparatus in itself is piss poor at understanding how discrimination actually happens. So you all remember the OJ trial mm-hmm. in which they're like, ah, you know, here, uh, Mark, what's his name? Right. He literally said the N word. This is the actual standard for most courts in terms of proving that discrimination happened in a proceeding. You have to have like a smoking gun epithet. They have to be a member of a hate group. It has to be something that is like undeniable, obvious, cartoonish levels of racism, right? And that's not actually how racism happens, right? So for a hate crime to be prosecuted, the perpetrator has to be, you know, they have to have committed hate crimes before. They have to be uttering an epithet while committing the crime. They have to be a member of a known hate group, not just something that's on the margins, like, you know, the people who troll us. They have to be a member of an actual known, like, neo-Nazi insignia-wearing hate group. That's so what it actually does is it allows for us to have this super, super narrow construction of what discrimination and violence is, what bias-based crimes are. And then everything that's not that is not considered a bias-based crime. Yeah. No, but here's the thing. Even when, you know, they have the proof because it was Korean news outlets that were saying, actually, this man came into this spa in Atlanta and said, I hate I want to kill all the Asian people. Like it was never reported in any of the quote unquote legacy or mainstream news outlets because it was a Korean based news outlet. So it's like even if we do have the proof, it's being blatantly ignored. And so here's again, in terms of legal apparatus. So let's say that, you know, the victim survives the crime and they say, I heard them uttering some epithet at me. The perpetrator can just say, no, no, I didn't. And then there's no witnesses and it's their word. That's how that's how ridiculous it is. Right. I don't remember saying that. Or if I said that's not how I meant it when I said it, you know, Uh I just meant it. You know, like it's there's too many levels of plausible deniability because, again, we are looking for a smoking gun extremely narrow look like you have to come in there with the hitler mustache and the damn <laughs> on your arm. for real yeah. 
I mean, it got me into an argument with us, a house, my housemate last week because he was yeah. like, you know, oh, well, the evidence, blah, blah, blah. I go, you're telling someone who doesn't know they're, who is a racist, who doesn't know they're a racist, just call themselves a racist. That is yes, crazy. Exa- exactly. And then, you're, and then you're letting law enforcement decide <laughs> yes. if the group is a special victim status or not. And law enforcement has a history of harming these groups, not helping them. And the guy, the chief, it was shown that he had race, a background of racism. So how do we, so how, gonna, what so happens you're going to let racists absolve another racist and say, oh, this wasn't a racist it's crime? Crazy. So what do we need to do as we end this conversation? What, what, what do you think next steps are and how we really kind of move forward to something that's better? Unfortunately, hopefully we're not so having something like this happen again. But you Yeah, know. so here's what's ironic. I think that, you know, in our history, we actually have examples of this again. I, the anti-lynching bill was great in terms of it actually came from marginalized communities. The one thing it didn't do was it didn't really encompass how half the race was experiencing white terrorism and when black women were being raped, right? So if we did the anti-lynching bill in a non-patriarchal way, that's actually a good example because that's what, the, what that did was it tried to expand the idea of what was racial terrorism. So you didn't have to be literally strung up by a tree. Right. Donald Byrd would be a lynching, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, burning down black churches can be covered in anti-lynching. That can be an expansion model. But the problem was that it wasn't written with black women in mind and therefore it was too narrow. But that's very different from what we have now, which are hate crimes and which tough on crime. You know, legislators like to appear like they give a damn about marginalized communities, but they don't. Mm. What they really give a damn is about buffering up law enforcement. Yeah, and bring communities in on this to create the bills. Absolutely. Yeah. Sayida Grundy, you are fabulous. We love having you on. Thanks again for being here. Thank you so much, guys. Now, coming up, we've got an update to the whole Sharon Osbourne, the talk debacle. Stay tuned for that next on What's Trending This Hour. Silence. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Welcome back. And we're wrapping up the show. This is our last hour before Friday weekend hits. Yeah. The show's almost over. It is. We go till 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern as a reminder of our time. And coming up, updates on Sharon Osbourne and the Talk and Ryan's Tea Report. Plus, everything you need to know about the new Georgia voting laws coming up in 15 minutes. We've got you covered. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Social media users are showing their support for the AAPI community by participating in a virtual day of action. The campaign, which was organized by the advocacy group Stand With Asians, aims to lobby corporate and political leaders to address the discrimination, inequity, and violence faced by Asian Americans while encouraging members of the community to take a day of rest. Organizers say they selected March 26th, which is today for the Day of Action, because the date marks the anniversary of the Naturalization Act of 1790 which restricted U.S. citizenship by naturalization to white immigrants. And that's been a barrier that was not removed for all Asians until 1952. So there's been a variety of virtual events happening in association with the campaign across Clubhouse, Instagram, Twitch, and YouTube. So you are encouraged to display your act of solidarity. And to find out more, just search hashtag stop Asian hate, hashtag stand with Asians, and hashtag stop AAPI hate. And that's how you can get involved with all of it. And President Biden has invited 40 world leaders to the Virtual Leaders Summit on Climate to host on April 22nd and 23rd, including Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese President Xi Jinping. 
This will be interesting to see Putin and him in person if it happens. You said Putin's name with a lot of energy. <laughs> well, it's like yeah. you were excited to say Putin. <laughs> It has a lot of energy to it, you know, I guess. The Biden administration also pledged to announce its new nationally determined contribution at schools to cut greenhouse gas emissions under the Paris Climate Agreement before the summit. So that is happening. And uh, that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so we got some big, big news. Sharon Osborne. Mm-hmm. Girl, we got a late, we got an update. It's time for the Tea Report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. Sharon Osbourne is saying bye-bye to the talk. She has quit two weeks after, you know, this whole daytime scandal where she got over a testy, uh, got into a testy argument over racial issues with her co-host Cheryl Underwood and, and then shocking allegations of racist name-calling came out. Well, um, according to a release by CBS, Sharon Osbourne has decided to leave the talk. Um, here is what the release says. The event of the March 10th broadcast we're upsetting to everyone involved including the audience watching at home as a part of our uh, review we conclude that Sharon's behavior toward her co-host during the March 10th episode did not align with our values for a respectful workplace we also did not find any evidence that CBS executives orchestrated the discussion or blindsided any of the hosts so she did beg everyone, Sharon Osbourne, this is not a part of the release anymore. Sharon Osbourne did beg everyone to cancel her, and um, I guess she got what she wanted. Uh, at this point, she's out of a job and kind of happy about it. Yeah, it's not surprising, considering how uh, how it was handled, you know, by her. It was kind of like, at that point... It was handled awfully by yeah. her. She should have just kept her mouth shut, in all honesty, and just, like, tried to learn and listen, but she That's wasn't doing thing. anything. Um, now, are you wondering when the show's going to come back? The talk will return with original episodes on Monday, April 12th, uh, following the pre-scheduled hiatus of the week of April 5th. So, um, yeah, I guess the statement also said we are committed to, uh, you know, their favorite words, diverse, inclusive, and respectful workplaces. Should we take a shot every time we hear that? I mean, honestly. um, So, yeah, I'm interested in seeing once they come back from this, will they bring it up and talk about it? I don't know. I feel like they need to. Yeah, it would be awkward and kind of like, but also the talk has never been that type of show where they well, never not, talked about race or but it's anything. It's not their heavy choice if that's is, what's happening. Yeah, but they guess what? They've always avoided it until this point, and so now we're seeing uh, something different. And yeah, they got to talk about the elephant in the room. That's your tea report. If you want to check out any of the stories that I've covered today, head over to weirdchannelq.com. Keep the conversation going at LGT Show everywhere. Do you think Sharon Osbourne should have lost her job? Let us know online. You know, I love that. At LGT Show. I already said that. Oh, making sure. We're wrapping up the show as we always do with some positivity with our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. This nurse is dancing her way into patients' hearts. Nurse Anna Wilkinson is from San Diego. She goes out of her way to take care of patients, deliver smells to everyone around her, and basically travels doing this, leaving her family behind. But she's doing such great stuff. So we wanted to feature her today. And, of course, this was something also featured on Good Morning America. Dancing in my patient's room, and then people started videotaping me. (laughs) Medicine. I think people just saw me dancing in my patient's room, and then... People started videotaping me. (laughs) I mean, obviously, I have amazing dance moves. 
From kids in Texas to COVID patients in Manhattan. So yeah, you know how much I love dancing. Yeah, I thought about you when I saw this. But I hate this to be quite honest. What? I know this Wait, is a feel what? good story. Why? I, I I just think if it was me sitting in a hospital bed, would I want my nurse dancing in front of me? Maybe. You never know. If you're feeling like crap, yeah, it helps. I have been in a hospital bed and getting surgery on my finger one time. Well, maybe it's not the during last surgery. I, not it's like during after surgery, the- but even <laughs> after surgery when I was like waiting for medicine, the last thing I would want her to do is be dancing in my face. Like, I'm going to dance first before I get you your medicine. I'm going to dance first before I get you your blood transfusion. I don't think it's dance first, then, you know, that. I, I, I think obviously, hopefully there's consent to this and it, it's... She gets the, no, she the vibe of the room. She's an ER trauma nurse. How do ER trauma nurses find time to dance and bust the move? Well, she does it. But and she's it's really people. sweet, though. That's how I wrap it all up. Wow. <laughs> Debbie Downer. But for me personally. Dancing Debbie Downer. That's what I'm saying. For me personally, I would not want this, but I just would want her to say kind words instead of like dancing in my so face. So you're more of like, an, uh, instead of visual, you're more auditory. Yeah, just like say something sweet and then leave. Wow. So I can watch TV. And if you want to give me a snack from the cafeteria, that's even better. I think this is one of those things you don't ask for. It just happens. And then you look at it as like a beautiful act of kindness. Exactly. Why would anyone just want that to happen? Well, that does it for our Yaz Queen of the Day. (laughs) Well, I said this is a personal (laughs) thing, by the way. Personally, for me, this is not my type of feel-good thing. But I was excited for her, and I I love that she's getting this recognition because so many first responders are doing whatever they can to really pull through and get through this and so she she really deserves this she, yes. and uh, she's uh, I'm happy she's making people really really exactly. happy because no one on Good Morning America is covering me dancing around every single day it doesn't yeah. seem to be inspiring because that's people. really where the ER trauma nurse the, the trauma kicks <laughs> I'm in putting people in trauma yeah. for my dancing at Cheryl Lazar, by the way, on TikTok. Okay, uh, that does it for our show as well. We are back Monday weekdays here on Channel Q 2 to 6 p.m. Pacific 5 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Monday's show, we're going to be uh, talking about the new, new study that shows no evidence for banning trans women from sports. Uh, hopefully, this will make a difference. This is what we've been waiting for. And so we'll be diving into that on Monday's show. Plus, watch out how an unpaid bill can lead to prison. That is next week. Plus, if you miss any of our shows or interviews, we post everything as a podcast. Just go to the radio.com app or where podcasts are available and search Let's Go There. We are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. See you Monday. Have a great weekend. Bye, y'all.